to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that feels a bit uneasy in tunnels. Just don't love them. If you can't see where it ends, if it's got a turn in it, no light, so to speak, I don't know. Always a challenge. I don't really have claustrophobia, but I think that activates it. Hmm. I I actually love tunnels. (laughs) See? There's always one. Yeah. Yeah, there was um, every time we would drive up to um, visit my family up in Maine, which is every summer, um, we would have to go over uh, bridges and go under tunnels. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad would always wake us up if we were doing either. So nice. It was. Yeah. Tunnels. Get, uh, there's a charm to going in them. I, I, they're, the entrance kind of looks, I don't know, because it's such a defiance of nature. It kind of looks intriguing or something. But yeah. Yeah, being mid-tunnel, I don't know. I'm not sure if there's any way to make them comfortable either. It's like you can't put windows in, you know, so you're just kind of, <laughs> and you can only make them so tall, all right? They can't be, can't be that tall. So right. it doesn't make me, I don't never, I don't feel fearful. I don't ever fear, feel, fear, feel fearful. <laughs> I don't get, I don't get tongue twisted while talking about my fear of tunnels. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> if you have no idea why we're concerned about the presence of tunnels, that is because you've stumbled upon a book club episode for the novel, The City and the City by China Mieville. That's a last name spelled M-I-E and then Ville, V-I-L-L-E. This is our part two book club. Our book club episodes are analytical deep dive episodes. So if you've found this episode by error, then just feel free to pause and come back when you've read the second half of that novel. Or if you don't mind spoilers, then just continue on with our conversation. Um, As I mentioned, we're a podcast that can be found on Instagram and Facebook. We have accounts up there at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. So again, on Instagram and Facebook, check us out. Give us a follow. You know, if you're on a podcast platform, Feel free to like, subscribe, leave a rating. All that stuff really helps, and we appreciate it all. Again, book clubs are going to be spoiler-filled, so today we're finishing our discussion on this novel, The City in the City. We'll be basically covering the second half of the book in detail, though at this point, obviously the whole book is up for, for spoiler warning, so be forewarned. Again, if you don't mind that spoiler talk, then just continue listening, or if you finish the book, you're in the perfect place. For the second half, Amanda, any content warnings you could think of? Uh, there is gun violence and some murder. That's what I came up with. Yeah, I, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. That's that's about it. Yeah, that's basically it, and it's pretty it's pretty lightly done. It is not. I think really because this book opens with the murder, it's really the most graphic quote unquote right in the beginning. But yeah, anyway, we'll discuss discuss as we get there anything before we start the second half uh nope i'm ready all right let's analyze this thing uh we'll start with our first stopping point and that's going to be chapters 14 through 16 so at this point we've got our detectives dot and borloo um, they are enjoying some tea discussing the case they suspect that ul quoman unificationists have something to do with this and uh after dot gets in some police brutality aggressive negotiations they decide to try Bowden again um they're suspicious of like, yeah, I guess let's just pause here. So Dot clearly, like, beats, you know, these people, these unificationists to get information out of them. Um, yeah. And so Borlo becomes suspicious. That's what, how I meant to phrase it. And asks Corwee to kind of investigate him to see what his deal is. It's clear that Borlu, we saw him in the first part of the book kind of 
jostle with some nationalists and be kind of clever and annoying, but he definitely wasn't beating people. <laughs> and so there's right. kind of a divide here between them um, and their and their methods. So they but they go to find Bowden and interview him. Um, he reveals very little, just kind of says all the canned things about Mahalia that everyone else has been saying. Um, maybe a little more critical about her than than others, but it's pretty typical stuff. He also is insistent again that Orson is bogus and that she really just went very far afield with her beliefs and research. And so he just kind of dismisses her and is like, I didn't know her well. I didn't believe in her research. I'm basically, he regrets he wrote that book. You know, he does, he doesn't believe in the third city. Um, Joris, then one of the UNIFs contacts Borlu. We learned that it was him who called Borlu in the beginning of the novel. So that's revealed. Um, he uses the phrase shut up a lot, which I just found really weird. <laughs> he just keeps telling <laughs> Borlu to shut up, I guess, because he has information to give. And, but in addition to that, though, he reveals that Mahalia was investigating Orsini when she disappeared. So he did seem to know a bit about, like, what she was into and that it may be connected to, to Orsini, the third city. And she basically just made every group angry. So everyone wanted her dead, it seems, according to this Joris person and the research they've done. It seems like any reasonable number of groups could have wanted her to to die at this point. What should we start with here? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I have um, the what I found interesting is the the politics and the the touch of, I guess, um, communism um, that was written in here, which um, I was reading some, a little bit about Mieville, and apparently Mieville is also um, his nonfiction pieces about Marxism are, are pretty well known, apparently. Yeah, he's kind of an academic. Him. I don't think he is, like, by trade, so to speak, but mm-hmm. I yeah, he's known for that, for sure. Yeah, I, I had no idea, so I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense with, like, the little little nuggets that he, he drops there. Um uh, let's see here. Uh, this is the 21st century, and President Ulmach, whose portrait you can also see where managers are most obsequious, like President Umber before him, had announced certainly not a repudiation, but a development of the blah, 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 blah. But there's, like, pictures of... there. He, he intimates that there was, like, possibly room for Mao um, and mm-hmm. others. And I was just like, yeah. I, I like that there's just this subtle kind of piece of information about that world again um, without him just being like oh by the way um, background they were communist and now they're working towards something different but really there's still some leftover communism and some leftover like ideas about that so I just I like the subtlety there of of that idea yeah there's always just enough in the book to touch back to the world or sort of connect it to real life events have some concrete connections it's it is a very light kind of quiet type of um i don't know surrealism fantastical writing whatever category you want to throw it in which yeah that that stuff is interesting do you think the unifs and the nationalists are fleshed out well i I mean you know we're gonna spoil the whole second half it does end up becoming this kind of bigger political scheme but it also gets into like it has a corporate angle in it in the end kind of the solution to this plot and so i don't know i'm not sure if by the end of the book i really thought those factions were not well thought out, they're well thought out, but like, because we get the detective's point of view, they don't have their own kind of positions. (laughs) They're just chasing the whole time. They're not really embedded in either group to like, 
I, I guess like do you know their policy positions do you know what they want do you know how they live like it it is kind of background dressing i guess it doesn't i don't know i i think it's um purposefully vague so that we can relate it to um, our own understandings of that. So, like, the yeah. unificationists totally make sense, right? Like, if you live in, for example, South Korea, and you know somebody who's a unificationist, you have a particular idea of what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and their their particular ideas of, you know, what it would take for North Korea and South Korea to unify. Um, then you have the, the nationalists, we have them here, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, where you have your own cultural understanding of what they want. And so I think that in part- he particularly leaves them to, to be just like a, a big idea of like, oh yeah, this is their title. This right. is what they want, but I'm not going to flesh them out so that uh, the reader can, I think, bring in their own understanding and kind of relate in that way. Because because yeah. of the way that he builds the world overall, he wants it to be something that I think the reader can relate to right. even though it's set in Eastern Europe it's still relatable yeah well, um, so I think he did that on purpose yeah it, it does have a vagueness kind of a functional vagueness um, I'll just point out quickly that I, I don't some of the dialogue in the second half I don't know if overwritten is the right expression um, but I did find the shut up thing to be I don't know, a bit annoying or something. Like, this is from two pages, uh, 176 and 77. It's obviously Jairus is in, like, a very, you know, frightened, intensified state. He says things like, Borlu, she fucking found it, Borlu. And he says, you know, she told me none of the others knew when we realized how dangerous she was banned from meetings. You stayed in touch, and he stumbles a while. But I, the characterization through the dialogue is a bit odd in this story. Like, I feel like Dot and Corwy, for example... Maybe he overallies on them cursing. It does feel very de- kind of downtrodden, overworked detective e to me. Um, maybe not in a bad way. I didn't think it was distracting, but in this conversation, like he, he just keeps he keeps starting sentences with no shut up. You know, he does it like four or five times, and um, I don't know. I, I enjoyed the heightened kind of intense nature of it. I think with an investigative story that kind of feels right or balances right. And there's some intrigue for sure that it builds his panic, but um, there, yeah, just some odd decisions like that. It, I, I don't distracting might be the word. Like sometimes it, when it was overplayed, it was kind of like pulling me out a little bit to have those little phrases. And sometimes Dot swearing just distracted me just a touch, where it was like, ah, you know, it's like every other word. It, it you know, uh, it's I guess part and parcel with the job. Yeah, yeah. It uh, Corwy in particular, her swearing. I, like, didn't even really pick up on it. I guess I was just like, okay, yeah, it's just a part of who she is or something. Yeah, but yeah. It, yeah, it didn't, it didn't like, register in my mind that she was doing it a lot. Um, I don't know what that says about me, though. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, coming from someone who's, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable cursing. I, I guess I try not to overdo it either, I suppose. But, yeah, it's just... I think the the emotional stakes are pretty heightened, so it's kind of like I, I nod in agreement with it. But I do think that this... I just want to point this one out because it was, you know, signified a broader trend, which is I do think some of the dialogue can be a bit distracting. It's... I don't know, though. It's The, the one thing it does well and avoids is there are some speeches at the end. Uh, characters have to reveal things and kind of make their case. And I feel like that stuff was well done. There wasn't any moment when I thought, like, well, this is really heavy-handed, a clear, you know, way for him to input some philosophy or belief system or ideology. Um, 
so I, you know overall i think it holds up well but yeah i think few, overall i enjoyed the the dialogue as yeah well. fewer f words maybe for me um let's do our next uh <laughs> stopping point uh so the next is chapter 17 through 19 um good old i come sway uh, yeah, I think I was going with Akim, Akim, <laughs> but I know that doesn't. That's not really how it's spelled. What my yeah. brain told me. Acom or Icom? Yeah. Anyway, the guard has saved the day by picking up the mail, which he doesn't usually do. Noticing that the package is weird and notifying the police because hey, there's a bomb threat. The package is from Bez to Bowden. But Borlu suspects the Bez postage is just a ploy. They also question the head guard, um, Buidzi, Buidzi, who admits that the students are constantly breaching, but that, you know, nobody can actually prove it. So uh, Bowden disappears. Barlu and Dot confront each other, finally, about each of them withholding information from the other. Uh, now they're going to be honest with each other completely. Maybe? Uh, mm-hmm. Dot takes Borlu home for dinner. He meets Borlu's wife, uh, not sorry, Dot's wife, not Borlu's wife, Dot's wife, Yalia, and walks back to the hotel after realizing that he's being watched by some shadowy figures. He follows Zaikam to where Yolanda has been hiding. She doesn't mm-hmm. trust any authorities and says that Orsini is out to kill her. Yolanda explains that Mahalia and Orsini have been communicating with one another and that she had been uh, doing some errands for them, namely stealing back their artifacts from the dig. Mahalia believed Orsini and Breach were enemies. Yolanda believes Orsini is Breach. Yeah, yeah. The big revelations here uh, in a critical moment in the case. Though, of course... um, yeah, of course, it's not going to be the things that are revealed here, <laughs> but it just felt felt like we were starting to get some clearer insights and answers into what was going on, for sure. Yeah. Shout yeah. outs to a, a quieter moment in this section that I want to throw out, because the back half of this novel, like once the investigation gets deeper, it really moves at a clip, you know, to its credit, yeah. I think, for the most part. Mm-hmm. I still, though, I still don't know if by the end of this novel... I have, like, I can say definitively what makes the cities all that different. Again, I think that's part of the thesis, though. So it's like I can't blame it, so to speak. Um, He he does go back to a couple of descriptions and setting kind of motifs, like the the gas stack buildings in Oklahoma, stuff like that. But I I was just latching on to, like, any carefully small observed cultural stuff, basically. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. the dinner with the wife is probably the only chance in the second half of the book where something like this happens because it's basically all interrogating people, chasing things around, and then kind of action. Um, With Breach, Mm -hmm. actually, there's some small moments. But anyway, a couple of small observations from their dinner. Um, They mention, it says, there are parts where even individual trees are cross hatched where old Quoman children and and Bez uh, children clamber past each other, each obeying their parents' whispered strictures to unsee each other. Children are sacks of infection. That was the sort of thing that spread diseases. Um, Epidemiology? I thought it was a... Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I guess it is epidemiology. It was always complicated here and back home. So I like like that, you know, phrase with the kids. Um, And then they mention the food. So it says she was, this is about the wife. She was an editor of a financial magazine and had, judging by the books I saw in the posters in the bathroom, a taste for Japanese comics. And then um, 
Give me a second. I'm trying to find this quote about the food. Where did it go? It was just a little thing. Ah, here it is. Okay. It, uh, my notes were too good. It actually did cross over the pages. <laughs> I wasn't ah. looking at the part of the pages that literally crossed over. Anyway, it says, um, they were bringing out food in bits and pieces. It was not home cooking and seemed to include a lot of convenience and prepackaged food, but it was better quality than I'd been eating. It was more Ulquoman, though that is not an unmitigated good. The sky darkened over the park and some other things. So, I mean, that's a, not only reveals their family dynamic, which is maybe they live kind of fast or they don't enjoy cooking, maybe don't have time. Etc. Any of those, but like, that's just a moment where I guess I enjoyed it because it gave us something. Also, a little bit about like the cultural imports, like oh, you know, obviously Japanese animations can be popular in Oklahoma. Like mm-hmm. maybe that's a cultural thing. But I, it also feels like it pulls up a little. Like what what foods? <laughs> Could you name them? You know, like but yeah, but the book does. Them. Yeah, but the book does at times feel like that is purposeful. I don't know. To me, it's either do I read it as, well, it's a detective story and it's just kind of trying to flesh things out in a meaningful enough way to keep the detective stuff going. Or is it that this should feel, this whole thing kind of feels hazy. And I think intentionally because you're supposed to by the end realize that like these places are kind of artificially kept apart and are more similar than, than not. Yeah. But I did enjoy that scene. Yeah, that was a good one, especially because, like, as he's walking, he realizes he's, like, he, gross topically, he is, like, right across the street from them, like, his own apartment. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. pretty funny, and, and he nearly encounters Breach as he kind of uh, gets close to his own apartment building after he goes for a walk after dinner. Yeah, yeah. Um... I also noticed um, the how Ulkoma kind of deals with the extremists in this particular case with the the unificationists mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, the coma coma first are the um, nationalists. I don't think that the unificationists had a name, right? I don't think so. And of course, Doc goes out of his way to say that they don't even really exist. Well, you know, they do, but don't. They're not big. Yeah. Um, He's saying uh, there's not like a fucking gang with little membership cards and a house they all live in. They're not units. They're not the monkeys. Um, And how come the unificationists congregate, but this lot don't or can't? Because the units are clowns. Dangerous clowns sometimes, all right. But still, the sort of people you're talking about now are serious old soldiers, that sort of thing. I mean, you got to respect that so unificationists Mm -hmm. are clowns but nationalists because they were old soldiers they deserve respect according to dot um -hmm. so i thought that was an interesting idea as well because i think that's that's a perhaps um a kind of parallel that we see a lot of the time so unifications um you know, people who are more willing to, they, let me put it this way. If you want to unify a country, um, that requires a lot of teamwork and a lot of, um, charity in a lot of ways, because one economy is, you know, inevitably stronger than the other and da da da. Uh, so that's going to be more of the, um, 
of that. And then the nationalists are going to be people who are like, I don't want to pay for that. Um, you know, my country's the best and I only want to worry about my country. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting to point out that one side gets more respect than the other because one side has roots in military background versus those who the unificationists who are considered clowns but i think that that's that's an interesting idea to build ulkoma and i think it's also um true for bazel too because when um borlu was talking the guy the the guy who shot him was ex-military and he was working for the nationalists in bazel right um, right but the unificationists were these like college dreamers. <laughs> they were really mm-hmm. young. Yeah. And, you know, on the outskirts of society and stuff. So Yeah, worth noting too, and this is why this podcast form it all all rail against forever, because there's so much about the way this book ends that we could talk about right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. It has it has some pretty clear ideas about like where what are the big influences in society. So just for example, there's a, a riot at the end that is sort of unificationist riot but like the book goes out of its way to not really make it seem that riotous like we don't witness I think what happens is one of the breach officers says like there's been two bus crashes they're doing it but then it's kind of like they just kind of coast over and finish the plot like there's not you don't see any like mass chaos violence they basically lock the cities down and then there's not any I don't know. It, it didn't feel chaotic to me, I guess is what I'm going to say. Like, I know it was supposed to be, there's a backdrop of a riot in the city, um, but it felt like more tell than show, which again, I'm not sure if that's a, there's a message in that of like, this is what happens when the unificationists get their, their revolution, which is not much happens. <laughs> like they don't have the tools or something or the means or who knows the motivation. So there, there might be something right. to that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people were just like, the chaos came from people just kind of running away. Yeah, it's more of just like people crossing over a a ton. I mean, the the bus crashes, it was kind of, I think it meant to be implied that it was purposeful, but even then, that's not really confirmed. It could just be that because people started breaching because they wanted to, that it created bus, you know, it's like incidental, not direct. And so even that was unclear to me, but maybe kind of the point. Um, next stopping point is 20 to 22. Uh, Borlu continues to catch up, so to speak, with Yolanda and Akim. They both seem in desperate shape, and he kind of observes they're living in squalor and just clearly both frightened for their lives. Um, perhaps Orsini is trying to kill them. And, and like we said, we haven't talked about this much, but Yolanda has a deep fear that Mahalia gave her since Mahalia was quote-unquote working for Breach. Anyway, so Borlu finally contacts Dot and reveals what he knows, and so they're, they're both on equal footing now. They begin a complex system of contacts, phone arrangements, and other things, which I have absolutely zero interest in summarizing. It is just detective, plot, whatever, who cares? <laughs> the goal is straightforward enough, though. They want to get Yolanda and perhaps Bowden, who they're also kind of in contact with, to Bazell by smuggling them across the border. So Dot's going to get some fake papers together and some uniforms and they're going to try and get them over because it's clear that Ulquoma, something really bad is going on and that they have since, you know, um, since Borlu can't help them in Ulquoma, it's like, well, let's get them to Bazel and then maybe I can help. With everything arranged, uh, also partial thanks to Corby across the border, they take their paperwork and outfits and they attempt to cross through the linked station, which is it Corpula? Copula? The Copula Hall. Copula Hall. So they're they're going to attempt to make a legal, you know, quote unquote, a legal seeming crossing. 
through the station, uh, through the hall rather. But as soon as they prepare to cross, uh-oh, there's gunfire, so it's utter chaos, crowds panicking. It is nighttime at this point too, so you know it's kind of dark. They thought to try going at night. Uh, Yolanda ultimately is shot and killed, and Dot is injured in the shooting. He gets shot, I believe, in the shoulder or arm, something like that. Though Borlo sees a man with a rifle and is able to pursue him, he does so not in the same city. So the man was in Bezel, but he is only able to escape and chase the man through Olquoma. Um, and he is in Olquoma. And because of that relationship, because he can kind of see him, but he doesn't want to breach, because obviously if he, you know, <laughs> if he looks at him too closely, he's going to be breaching. He kind of makes out where he's going. And just as the mystery shooter is about to get away and, like, go to a section of the city that's only in Bazel, Borlu makes the decision of the book, the decision the book has been building toward, <laughs> which is that he shoots the assassin dead and Breach immediately comes and collects him since by killing somebody across cities, you have breached. <laughs> pretty clear definition there and so that's that's where we leave this section yeah and and the way that he is uh caught by breach is like an almost like an enveloping of his senses right Mm -hmm. i thought that was really interesting yeah, it's a it's a pretty well written moment too, and so there's there's these on two thirty seven. There's these citizens watching him. Um, there's a couple small details uh, for that sliver of time too short for him to be accused of any crime, but certainly deliberate. He looked right at me. I knew him. I did not know from where he looked at me at the threshold to that abroad only geography and made a tiny triumphant smile. He stepped toward the space where no one in Ilquoma could go. I raised the pistol and shot him. I shot him in the chest. Astonishment and you know, then Breach collects him. And so, yeah, it's, it, it, I, I don't know. He's not a very spiteful man, Borlu. And I think this was his kind of detective decision. I don't think it was personal, but it certainly can't help to get taunted <laughs> right before you, <laughs> yeah. right before your, you know, assassin guy's gonna, gonna get away or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was a bold choice to be sure. Uh, from another person who otherwise has spent the story kind of diligently doing police work and pursuing leads, you know, not being too... He doesn't do any brutality, at least, like Dot. So <laughs> he seems like a slightly more measured man of the two. But it is really the definitive moment of the book. It's also interesting because he, he makes the point, Borlu points out that <clears throat> he's he's killed people before. Right. He's shot at people before, but only when he has been in danger. Only when he's been shot at, not when yeah. he's never shot somebody just who was not actively trying to kill him. Yeah. So yeah. that was an interesting choice too in that respect. And this is it's clear this is a suspicion. He's doing this out of it's not like he I mean it's it's definitive in that he like saw the guy hoist the rifle and like do men run and yada yada but it's not like he's made an arrest they haven't double checked the footage they haven't I don't know what else I could say in terms of police procedural things (laughs) but it's it's him kind of going out on a limb to do it too. He's taking a chance Mm-hmm. an estimated um, shooting yeah and and he's uh, i think that he did it for for two reasons is um that he's afraid i think that the dude's gonna get away with it because nobody's gonna say that they saw him because they're not sure if they saw him then it would be a breach right so he would get away the second thing i think is that he was kind of curious because on one hand, Mahalia 
<clears throat> um, says that Orsini no longer exists, but then Yolanda was saying that Orsini and Breach are the same. So by going ahead and breaching, he can kind of investigate that aspect of it as well. Yeah. it's And since, it, again, we, we just have to spoil this book, I just hate discussing <clears throat> things like in that very solid off way. I think we're going to give up on this format soon, by the way. I was really thinking about it yesterday. I really hate doing oh, talking okay. about books this way, <laughs> where it's like, <laughs> oh, can't get ahead. Like, no, the, we've read the whole book. Um, it works out so well for him. Like, and that's where I can't tell if it was like at this moment, if he's calculating it, like, you know, I I just need to know, like, I just, it's time. I want to see what happens when I breach. I don't think that must, I don't think that's true only because up to this point in the book, when he remembers breach, when he remembers his childhood, childhood interactions with it, it is very kind of ghost spooky, supernatural feeling to these people like they they kind of only whisper about it and even his own memory is like it's very frightful it's a it's a really intimidating force shadowy so i i don't think in this moment he's like time to find out it just so happens that once he's there as it turns out they're just cops (laughs) they're just more cops so it's like of course he's comfortable he's just talking to other cops super cops (laughs) um so it just kind of turns out that way uh in the end but i not to jump way ahead but that's it is interesting though that he makes this decision because it is yeah i think it's it must have just been part of partially the frustration of these conflicting conspiracy theories he's just caught up in something he just can't grasp Mm-hmm. Dot says a lot of that same or echoes rather a lot of that same frustration too in the book where it's just kind of yep. like I don't know who the hell's telling the truth I don't know what the hell's going on couple F words in there and just <laughs> and just sort of this really this book kind of teems with conspiracy th- frustration for, from the main characters yep. anyway so for sure anything else from uh, that section <clears throat> yeah just a small little thing on page 213 mm-hmm. stay I said I'll be back Aikam recognized the phrase, though it was in English. He smiled, and so I said the words again for him in an Austrian accent. Yolanda did not get it. I just, I was like, oh, yeah, I love that. And I I love that he doesn't straight out say, oh, this is from Terminator, but that he just kind of, like, throws that in there, and it was just, like, a nice little, like, cultural thing that was just so... I don't know. I, I just really was like, oh, that's just so cute. And... yeah well done without having to like say ah it's a reference to Schwarzenegger a book (laughs) really light on allusions in the direct let's do a quote sense right right I think you could find a ton of stylistic thematic inspiration I don't know if Mm -hmm. I'd go so far as to say illusion but that that one is just cut and dry yeah, it is. And, and I feel like that was like the only one that I picked up on. So I was like, is it significant? Is it uh really important i i I, I don't know i will say that it it does show borlu's competence in the conversational aspect of detective work sort of building Mm -hmm. relationships and making people comfortable and making them trust you and all that kind of thing which you know he kind of has it both ways with a kim because he beats him up first (laughs) so it's like okay he's physically strong or like trained he's not some you know he's not schwarzenegger right like because he even says i believe he says something like um, he would have beat me up if he would have gotten up off the ground, but like yeah. because I pinned him, he he did, <laughs> he did actually um, stay subdued or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it just kind of shows the Borlu's got the the toolkit, so to speak, the detective toolkit. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's get some mysteries answered. 
Yeah, chapters 23 through 25. <clears throat> Borlu is in breach, and he realizes that they want to know about Orsini. They convince him to work with them to find out where Orsini is. Borlu agrees reluctantly after being shown lots of clips of interrogations of Dot, Bowden, Corey, and even his two girlfriends, which he found completely unnecessary. Um, when he finally agrees to work with Breach, he finds out that the way Breach remains, quote, shadowy figures is that they wear clothes that could be either Bez or Okoman. And when in cross-hatched areas, they just walk back and forth freely because people will quickly unsee them. They go to the library to find Mahalia's notes in the library's copy of Bowden's book. After pouring through her notes, Borlu comes to the conclusion that Mahalia stopped believing in Orsini. Yeah, the deep dun, reading. Dun, dun. The deep analysis. <laughs> <clears throat> yep, yep. Nothing like having to close read somebody's annotations. Just brutal. <laughs> Torture. Well, but then again, I mean, fascinating things are made of such research, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like reading somebody's journals and or letters, correspondence, analysis. I, I found, yeah, and he, he definitely, he was given that task, and... and also, he was told that they're researching, they're actually looking into his breach, which is how they can get around being able to investigate Mahalia. Because um, breach is only allowed to investigate breach. So. Yes, right, right. <clears throat> Final descriptions of breach as he starts to put it together, I thought were pretty, pretty intriguing. And it, it lacks the eeriness, of course, but it has a sort of power and... Yeah, I don't know. He almost kind of feels defeatist about it, which on 248 I'll read. So his conclusion, once he starts talking to Breach and chatting with these detectives, he says, The Breach was nothing. It is nothing. This is, a co this is commonplace. This is simple stuff. The Breach has no embassies, no army, no sights to see. The Breach has no currency. If you commit it, it will envelop you. Breach is void, full of angry police. The trail that led again and again, or sorry, led and led again to Orson, he suggested systemic transgression, secret para rules, a parasitic city or parasite city where there could be nothing but nothing, nothing but breach. If breach was not orsony, what would it be but a mockery of itself to have to let that go for centuries? That was why my questioner was he, when he asked me, does orsony exist, put it like this. So are we at war? I brought up our collaboration to their attention. I tried to bargain and he thinks he might be able to get out of breach. But yeah, it's sort of a, it is just sort of a nationalized police force that kind of has no jurisdiction or all jurisdiction. <laughs> and it so in that sense, it's sort of a maddeningly simple answer, which, you know, I find satisfying in some ways. I, I It also felt like a detective's answer in a detective book. So again, I'm torn between the idea of like, has he just written something very co coherent them thematically and kind of interesting in that way? Or is it kind of... Is it kind of boring? Is it kind of a boring mm -hmm. answer? I don't know. I didn't feel bored reading it, I'll say that. Um, but I, mm -hmm. I could see somebody arriving at this and just being like, oh, oh, so that's all? They're just... At some point later in the novel, it's also revealed, he's really pressing them, like, well, how do you get ahead of things? Like, how do you... How do you predict the crimes that will happen? Like, how are you always there right away? Because it, it seems like Breach shows up the moment a transgression occurs. And basically, they're just like, we just have wiretaps everywhere and cameras. <laughs> and like, in, and we, yeah. at some point, he even says the, uh, a shill, is it? A sill? Uh, it just says, like, we have informants for this. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> just doing all the super cop things. They're just better at it and have obviously access to both sides and have unlimited right. access. And so... 
I, I guess let me pose it this way, and I know we're not at the end of the book, but these are critical descriptions. I thought the book would be more critical of this revelation, but it seems the book is almost seems kind of comforted by it. Borlu seems comforted by it. Yeah, like I, I thought that I also had the same reaction. I was like, oh, I thought that the book would be more about like on the side of the unificationists in a lot of ways where it's like these borders are ridiculous and, and, and stuff. But then it seems that Borlu wants to keep the two cities separate. I, well, the, the fact that he becomes breached <clears throat> has yeah. to indicate that. I mean, I don't know how else you yeah. read that. And, and yeah. because there's no evidence of like, it doesn't seem like he's been beaten down, corrupted, you know, made evil or something. I mean, that's too easy a reading, maybe. Right. But because none of that seems to be in the way it ends, it's like it does seem like a pretty satisfied. You know, of course, it, it's the classic men in black. Like <laughs> to take up this life, you have to lose your whole old life, which he does. Right. Um, and so there's that sacrificial element to it. But yeah, it's the breach revelation is an odd thing. Again, I think it reads kind of thematically very coherent, uh, coherently. But I also don't know. Nah, I don't know. He writes about it well, at least, in kind of the the maddening, simple void void cops, or however he phrased it, void police. Yeah, yeah. It's it seems inevitable that it's it's like breach is like an inevitability is how I was reading it. It's just it's always going to kind of be there. There's always going to be that border. So yeah, as long as, as well. you maintain this sort of divide, that people always straddle it. Which again, thematically. I think that reads pretty well. Like, I get, yeah, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, I understand the the ideas this book is toying with, so to speak. Um, there's a couple more descriptions of Breach that I thought were interesting, because now that he's in it, on 256, when he's walking, he says, That evening, a shill walked with me in both cities. The sweeping curves of Ulquoman Bizentary ajut over and around the low Mattel Continental and Middle History brickwork of Bazel, its bas-relief figures and scarfed women in bombardiers. Bazel's steamed food and dark breads, is it fugging? What, I'm not, what is that word? Fuging? F-U-G-G-I-N? Fuging? Is it like fugue? Like a fugue? Entering it? But that's what I... But there's yeah, no that's U what I in kinda... it. Is that really how that verb is spelled? That's so weird. <laughs> but okay, oh, yeah, no. like in a fugue. Anyway, fuging with the hot smells of Wakoma. Colors of light and cloth around gray and basalt tones. Sounds now both abrupt um, schwa staccatoed sinuous and throaty swallowing but being in both cities had gone from being in Bazel and Okoma to being in a third place that nowhere both that breach everyone in both cities seemed tense I mean it was hard to read out loud but I will say that I enjoy leaning in uh, and reading the, mm-hmm. the sort of overwhelming sensational descriptions like that which you know obviously <laughs> nothing easy about parsing it is i couldn't even read a couple of the words out loud but <laughs> yeah, i do i do think it's the right approach he takes to kind of overwhelm and make it seem like this living this double existence is just really intense and requires a sort of different point of view yeah so and like we don't get a whole lot of um you know, big descriptions like that in this book is the, yeah. the language here is usually pretty simple and and straightforward in a lot of ways. So when there's a lot of description like that, uh, just like in the with the dig site, he takes a lot of time to describe mm-hmm. the different layers in the dig site and stuff like that. It makes you really pay attention, and it just makes it even more enjoyable to read when we come across those. Yeah, for sure. Anything else from this section? 
<clears throat> no, not really. Okay. Yeah. I guess we we breached into breach well enough. It's Yeah. Yeah, I I don't think I was expecting a big revelatory twist. And I think that the fact that Orsini is basically a conspiracy theory uh, turns out in a detective sense to be satisfying enough. But it's still mm-hmm. them being super cops was kind of like, oh, <laughs> I did, maybe didn't wouldn't have guessed that wouldn't have expected it. Anyway, uh, makes sense. Twenty six and seven final or second to last stopping point. Uh, there's a lot of debating about who could be involved in the mur- uh, murder of Mahalia, combining words. Detective work and logical leads chased even at this point in the story. So it's like he's just helping these breach detectives, some of whom speak to him, some don't. He is kind of a prisoner. I mean, he's <laughs> he's like a prisoner consultant for them because they do need some info or insight that he has. Through some record double checking, they finally discover a kind of suspect, um, the CEO of Seer and Core, a company that owns Core in Tech. Is that right? And there's like a couple other ones named too. This is the thing that the book ends up settling on, which is like, it's corporate espionage. (laughs) It's like corporate intrigue, corporate manipulations of these kind of city economies. Anyway, so there's a tech company in Bazell under those names. They learn that Mahalia would commit acts of breach on the company's behalf. They, the company, was pretending to be Orsini, or we'll learn who was doing that, and deliver the ancient and valuable artifacts to them. Um, but our detectives also realized that somebody in Copula Hall must have been pulling some strings because otherwise this plot is like way too logistically complex to pull all this off. And so they're kind of suspicious. I, I can't remember at that point in the story, do they suspect the guy it ends up being or no? Are they just like, because all I remember is they no. really want to go to Seer and Core like headquarters. They're like, okay, we know we're pretty sure that that is the company that is manipulating and that they were influencing Mahali to get artifacts. Do they know who yet? I don't know. No, they okay. they were uh, they thought that it was a different politician. Yes, the one Sader. who was like, yeah, got it. Yeah, they thought it was him. Yeah, but um, just as they're ready to go to Siren Corn investigate or Corn Tech, whichever subsidiary it was, uh, a massive breach invasion occurs. The Unifs are ready to make their great unification effort known. There's buses crashing. I know I mentioned that earlier, and some chaos. And so, like, all the breach detectives are spread very thin. There's absolutely no one that can help because there's breach all over the place. Um, The book comes to a pretty natural detective fiction climax then, because Asil and Borlu alone get to confront the person at the head of this, who is Minister Mikhail Burich, uh, the social democrat. He's, He's master Masterminded this plot, so to speak, and he is using this invasion to try and flee on a helicopter because they've ground all of the planes, right? Because of breach. So this was his. This was the ploy to like, okay, we'll inspire the Unifs to finally have this big rebellion moment, kind of, and so that we can get out, just to cover. Um, so here's the, here's the breakdown of the plot. Um, Burrich almost shoots Borlu. Then Borlu believes that he's shot. Then a, he sees Ashil shoot Burrich. Then Burrich's goons shoot Asil. Then Borlu confronts the goons. And on and on. Did I miss anything? It's just, you know, it's like a standoff scene. It's like the you know. American CEO boards the helicopter oh, anyway. Right. right. Um, because he's like, uh, I'm American, and yeah, this is crazy. doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> yeah, he even does make light of that. I thought that was kind of a pretty pointed, not satirical moment, but cultural kind of commentary moment of like, do you yeah. see two cities? You're just being manipulated by forces that don't even care about you. They're just taking yeah. advantage to like get what you can offer them <laughs> and manipulating your system 
to to get what they want again seems like pretty pointed commentary at the end um on and on there's an action kind of shootout scene the goons escape um a shill though it seems like he'll survive because he had a vest on so there's that twist a classic detective thing or like crime fiction thing he ends up giving warlu his badge guns and other authentication documents and tells him to go get some justice because at this point and frankly i don't even remember how but like they understand that Bowden was the other factor i think what they realize is like it must have been Bowden who was helping the company manipulate her or something uh, is that what it was like they just kind of hired Bowden to like help manipulate Mahalia because they knew that Bowden could uh kind of I actually go into that in my oh okay because I yeah. frankly just did I just know that like the final confrontation is like oh it's it's Bowden it's been Bowden the disgraced professor um he uh, he being Borlu meets up with Corwin and Dot briefly and then has his confrontation with Bowden so they do get a philosophical kind of chat or confrontation Bowden admits you know his selfish and even like evil deeds and Borlu gets his arrest so it there is a final moment for these characters to kind of I don't know talk it out um do you want to start there then since you have some thoughts on it um sure yeah <clears throat> um or did you, yeah, you're saying he, in a different section? Yeah, because the final two chapters, I think, so chapter 28 is the actual confession. Oh, okay. Never mind then. <laughs> <laughs> I jumped ahead by one. I, do, I guess That's I it. forgot the sections. I, I will say the final moments with Bowden on 303, I was going to comment on this because this, it is a yeah. significant moment, obviously. It, up until this point, they hadn't been sure what, what's going on with him. Um, mm-hmm. So there's some there's some important discussions that they have. Um, a couple exchanges. He had a slowly souring face. Where's Burrish? Dead. Good, good. I stepped towards him. He pointed the artifact at me like some stubby bronze age, bronze age wand. What do you care? I said. What are you going to do? How long have you lived in the cities? Now what? It's over. Orsini's rubble. Another step. He's still aiming at me, mouth breathing and eyes wide. You've got one option. You've been to Bazel. You've lived in Oklahoma. There's one place left. Come on. You're going to live anonymous in Istanbul, in Sebastopol, make it to Paris. You think that's going to be enough? Uh, and then he says, Orsini is bullshit. Do you want to see what's really in between? A second held. He hesitated long enough for some disappearance. And so, yeah, he. it's clear that, like, he can just jump between them and is committing breach and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, his final mm-hmm. moment, though, is, has some pretty pointed language. He sagged with some moan, apology, plea, relief. I was not listening and don't remember. I did not arrest him. I was not politicizing. That's the bazelle. Not then in breach, do not arrest. But I had him in exhale and exhaled because it was over. So it is kind of a... He was way stretched thin, this professor. It was clear that he had (laughs) pulled plots and schemes way beyond his kind of abilities here. Mm -hmm. It's an exhausted Mm -hmm. kind of ending. Yeah. And also, but he was also uh, still trying to make it out of the cities and, Mm -hmm. and, and just not sure. He, he still would not commit to either one of the cities so that he could be pulled away to be arrested. So, he was still hopeful there for mm-hmm. a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I can just go ahead and, and really quickly summarize since since we're going that way anyway. Um, uh, Borlu had called Dot and Corwi to find Bowden, except technically they can't see him since he's in the crosshatched areas and not claiming a particular location. Right. So they follow him, but don't see him <laughs> until Borlu finally reaches him. 
because of the the chaos of the night. And then dun dun dun, the big reveal. Bowden is the bad guy. He's the murderer and the one to use Burrick. Ultimately, he was trying to create evidence that Orsini is real via the artifacts. Oh, right. Um, okay. He, he became enraged when Mahalia realized Orsini isn't real because of his ego. So he rage killed her. Then he had to get rid of Yolanda, just in case, while also tricking Burke into believing that um, he, Bowden, believed Coma first were trying to kill him because Burke was trying to trick um, him into that. After all the revelations, Bowden kind of collapses and Borlu takes him to breach and he comments on the irony, seeing as this all came out in investigating his own breach. Uh, Bowden is punished somehow by Breach, and Borlu is forcibly recruited <laughs> by Breach because he, he's not allowed to go back to his home. This is because once you have truly breached, you can't go back to unseeing. So he would constantly be in Breach. Um, right. He has his shadowy goodbyes with Dot and Corwy and begins his training, his official training, with Breach. Yeah, that's his, his fate <clears throat> is in the hands of the super cops. Super cop. Yeah, so ultimately, um, Bowden had, um, because of his book, uh, the the big CEO kind of contacted him and was like, hey, we're interested in, like, this artifacts, and, and, like, offered him a big sum, and Bowden was like, I didn't do it for the money, but the money was nice. Um, he said that he did it in order to reestablish his reputation, because his reputation was totally ruined and he just right, could right. not stand being a joke in the academic world which is also why when Mahalia uh, figured out that Orsini wasn't real she went to Bowden yeah, to warn must him have, yeah I've done something yeah right either confronted right. or told him probably not confronted exactly. because at that point he was already getting away from it exactly um, and so the realization that even his attempt to Recreate Orsini, so he's he's ridiculed for his Orsini beliefs, and then he's trying to manipulate these girls, and um, he thinks that he's so superior to them, but they figure him out. It's just another failure on his part, and another thing about Orsini that's just uh, holding his academic career back again. Right. Uh, so he just rage kills her. So yeah. That's, yeah, and I think, wasn't there a note it. in there, one of the creepier details or more of kind of violent ones, that he, like, he like, yeah, like, rage hit her with that artifact, and then I think, what did he say? Like, he put makeup on her to make it seem like it wasn't as bad as it was or something? There was some little detail like that in there that I was like, oh, that's, you know, creepy. Yeah, he um, he wanted to hide her identity right. in some way. Yeah. Um, and so that's why he did all the makeup. Yes, right. That was yeah. That's uh, nothing like doing a little performance like that on a corpse. That's yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The guy was yeah way strung out. Um, and then yeah, Borlu's fate. We've kind of alluded to this throughout, but like he's part of Breach now. Do you feel like that fits? Yeah. It does, and I think that um, he was saying that you know Breach is just like this uh, this force of 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 um just reactionary and there's not a whole lot of investigation going on um so he's going to be bringing in a different aspect of of breach but with his investigative skills and stuff so i was not surprised um because yeah once you've breached like what do they do with you like there's this whole 
There are some they, mysteries, they which I liked, because they even yeah. say a couple times about, like, once they have them, they're like, we handled it, or, you know, we have our ways, and I do appreciate that. I do feel like books that go to, you know, fantastical books that go the, at lengths to explain everything, it's always a huge mistake. It's it's meaningful right. to leave things unknown. You've got to. Exactly. Yeah. So I did like that. Yeah. And, and Breach has to uphold, like, a, a certain mystery, too, so... They can't just let Borlu go, so that really there's no other option. Either he has to work for Breach, or he has to like, I don't know, be shipped off to Canada. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically implied though, because here's the on three ten kind of the the onboarding conversation. The Breach guy, Ashil, you did an excellent job. You've seen how we work. Nowhere else works like the cities. He said it's not just keeping them apart. It's everyone in Bazel and everyone in Ulquoma every minute, every day. We're only the last ditch. It's everyone in the cities who does most of the work. It works because you don't blink. That's why unseeing and unsensing are so vital. No one can admit it doesn't work. So if you don't admit it, it does. But if you breach, even if it's not your fault, for more in the shortest time, you can't come back from that. And then he ends by saying, "What do you know about the British Navy?" Ashil said, "A few centuries ago, I." looked at him. I was recruited the same as everyone else in Breach. None of us were born here. We were all once one place or the other. All of us breached once. So it's, they recruit from people they arrest. Which seems like a massive... I don't know, it's like a red flag. I, yeah, it's like if that's how you're operating. And now, granted, he already said it's sort of a... Pa- they have this kind of passive acceptance from both both communities, both cities, and so that's where their authority comes from. Just the perception alone is enough, kind of. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know, again, it's for the conclusion that it is, the revelation again that like, oh, you know, these are, we're all breachers who just have to live this way, we're captive. I don't know, I just thought it would be a little bit more critical about that ending than it seems to be. Yeah. I, yeah, It's it's, I think it's just the inevitability that there's always going to be a border. There's always going to be border police. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, and I suppose, too, that is... Do you think the book meant throughout the story to onboard us to thinking Borlu is like a worthy... I don't know, not not iconic, that's way too strong, but sort of like a worthy cop? Is that how we're supposed to read it, kind of? I think so. That's how I read it. Yeah, kind of like he is the one to be trusted, to be believed, to be... Um, a man of integrity, and so this is the... Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I don't really know what to say about that book, or about that reading of the book, too. I guess it's just different than I thought it would be in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it I, again, for detective fiction, I, I suppose it makes sense. Yeah. And he gets to gets to have his super cop life. He is now the, the super cop. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Any thoughts on the ending? Um, I, I enjoyed actually the second to last paragraph. Um, mm-hmm. So it says, so I grabbed him by the scruff, turned him, marched him away under the authority I've been granted. Oh, wait, sorry. That's not, that's the that's wrong fine. paragraph, Amanda. Okay. <clears throat> I have a great deal to learn and no choice but to learn it or to go rogue. And there is no one hunted like a breach renegade. So not ready for that or the revenge of my new community of bare extra city lives. I make my choice of those two non-choices. My task is changed, not to uphold the law or another law, but to maintain the skin that keeps law in place. Two laws in two places, in fact. Um, gotcha. I just like that description of his new job. I was just like, yeah, that's a... It, again, p- 
points to the fact that he doesn't really have a choice, but I mean, he's making the best of it and, and right. how he's approaching it. And I just, I thought that was really well worded. And it matches up with like personal relationships. It's like the person he's going to miss most is Corwy and he can find a new work Corwy. <laughs> he can have a new work friend who is like reliable and trustworthy, even though the breach people speak in these strange clipped ways and they like vote on everything. Again, cultural stuff yeah. that I thought was really interesting. Like there, at least there's little hints about their behaviors and the way they connect and relate and stuff. I know we didn't dive into it too deeply uh, the breach culture stuff, but I think that's the um, that's the kind of consolation he gets in the end. Even it's it does seem like at the end his <clears throat> character was tailor made for this, like his personal romantic relationships. It's sort of like there's a respectful distance there. It's not like he was deeply connected to either of the women he had been seeing. He just kind of right. is like, well, you know, I, I liked them, but I can move on. <laughs> it's pretty frictionless, I guess, to say. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote them each um, a goodbye letter, essentially yeah, just being like, yeah. hey, have a good life. See you never. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. See in the breach. I'll, I can spy <clears> on <throat> you whenever I want to. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and dot to. Okay. Yeah, I don't really have any final <laughs> thoughts. I feel like we covered it well in the, in the analysis. Yeah. Any questions or thoughts on the book before we jump nope. to our segments? I'm ready. Nice. All right. Our final two segments will be as they always are in part two, which is going to be critical assistance and then our Hall of Fame. Let's start with critical assistance. This is when we go to an outside source, like a book review or, um, you know, maybe a video or podcast or whatever, just another piece of criticism and discuss what they thought of the book. Do you want to do yours first? Yeah. Let's do Um, it. Mine is from... Uh, fantasy book review and it's actually like two dudes who write quick blurbs um, Mm -hmm. reviews um, and these two guys actually had two very different reactions so I thought that was interesting oh so they always do them they do them podcast style then they do them a little back and forth yeah but they but they write so like one has one and then the yeah so the first one is uh, by Charlie White Mm -hmm. and um, he was very very much a fan of this book Um, yeah the book works simply as a crime novel, but it is far more than that. Nieville has created a world so rich in detail and depth that you get lost with, within Bazel and Ilkoma very quickly. He creates complex and vivid characters full of backstory, politics, and heartbreak. Inspector Borloo has that crumpled, seen-it-all-before feel of Kurt Wallander or Inspector Frost. A good cop just trying to see that the murdered woman gets what she deserves. Maybe that sounds a little bit cliched, and in the hands of a lesser writer, it might be, but Mieville's characters are very subtle and layered. So I chose that because I agree. Like, I think that the characterization was just really well done. And also, like, it could be, it's like on the verge of being cliched, but somehow he makes it so that it's not. Yeah, think of Um, how many cliched things we just covered, you know, but it didn't bug us. But I think when the writing is strong, I don't know. I I will say that I when he says you get lost in Bazell and Oklahoma, I just never felt that, but it didn't but the characters really carried it and it was interesting and and when he wants the plot to move, he he pushes it pretty aggressively forward and like, you know, the characters have a lot of conversations about the Anyway, so I thought the world was interesting. I don't think it was that immersive feeling. Um, but it was, you know, the writing was strong and they avoided cliche. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he goes on to say much is said about Mieville's intelligence and yes, the comparisons to Kafka and to a certain extent Orwell are justified. They are writers who used politics and fables to comment on the world in which they lived and the city in the city says much about the West's view of Eastern Europe and its people. 
But he can also write a at a blistering pace. Much of the best parts of the novel are not held within the discussions of the social and political environments within the cities, but the car chases, gunfights, and good old-fashioned sleuthing that is present within all great crime stories. Mm. Um, and I was like, yeah, the pace is actually, it, it does clip along really quickly. I mean, this is a really fast read overall, and um, which is, you know, pretty standard, I think, for most detective novels. Yeah, um, yeah. I will so. remember this book as like a very solid bit of detective fiction. I, I really don't think I'll remember it for being like sci-fi-ish, but I, I think the concept of Breach is, was a winner in the end. But it yeah. did feel like it was a great, you know, if I wanted to call it a great anything, I don't think I would say it's great sci-fi or even great fantasy stuff. I would say it's just great detective fiction. Like it didn't, yeah, it ducked every cliche and built an interesting, you know, wraparound story within or world within. Yeah, I would I would actually say the same. Like the, the detective uh, genre fit well. Yeah. Um, so then um, the other guy, George uh, Reich... He says, mm-hmm. overall, I found this to be an extremely well-crafted novel with a fully realized story. China's style and love of language again made me marvel and long for more. All I could truly wish for was less philosophy and more clarity. I found myself rereading passages over again, trying to understand the rules of unseeing and breach to no true satisfaction. Strangely enough, I had thought changing the scene from the new Crobuzon world, which is, I guess, one of his other novels, yeah. to our own, <clears throat> would give China more of a personal identity. Unfortunately for me, it made me feel even more like, made him feel even right. more like Neil Gaiman's little brother. I was like, oh, uh... <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a little I harsh. I guess it depends on who, what they feel about gaming. Yeah, that's either a, you yeah. know a tough criticism or it's like, well, you know, that's you did well. <laughs> depends on what people think yeah. of gaming, but yeah, yeah, I probably um, vibe with that quote more than the other ones. Really? Well, I, the little bro- yeah, you're right. I probably wouldn't say that because I do think it was pretty great, like up there with. And I, I also don't even love game, and I kind of just like his stuff. It's. Yeah, but no, I I just think that, well, okay, maybe I don't agree with the quote, because the middle part about Breach and Unseen, and I actually thought that worked well after the first maybe 50 pages. I remember in the first part going on and on about that, where it's like, once they gave me some footing, I was 100% on board. I like that weirdness. I like the unknowability of this foreign space. Yeah. Um, That I really dug, so I don't agree with that, I suppose. But I, I do think that it's... I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like a hugely accomplished book, but it's very good. I I agree. And and the thing yeah. that also I was like, what is he said? He wanted less philosophy and more clarity. I was like, it's mm-hmm. not an overly philosophical book. I mean, there's just yeah. little little insights and little descriptions, but like <clears throat> that is what made the book for me really charming and made it even more than just a detective fiction for me yeah and so i liked that and and so i just disagreed with with this guy yeah yeah <laughs> i'm on i'm on board too that i i think i would say i could have used with a few fewer a few few fewer <laughs> a few a few few um uh, no a few fewer 
Wait, why don't I just say fewer? What am I what am I trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird caught in a loop here. I'm caught in my own breach. I'm breaching the language. I meant fewer. I wanted less, which is I think the wrong word. Anyway, just <laughs> debates between people. I do think it got a little conversation heavy. Yeah, it towards mm-hmm. the be- like it's it seemed like at some point every character had to have a pretty clear debate conversation type kind of again it didn't get pedantic it didn't get heavy-handed in a negative sense but it did i don't know it graded on me a a, a tiny bit just a touch so yeah cool i get that those are well said i like those quotes too that's yeah interesting um mine uh, my critical assistance is from the website mastersreview.com which is kind of labeled as like a place for up-and-coming writers to get some writing in so i don't i don't know what their philosophy is but that's i just found a review that was intriguing it's by lauren uh kleppinger or Kle- um kleppinger and this is again mastersreview.com uh just a review of the book uh, she says, Mievel's prose almost entirely avoids exposition about Bazell and Oklahoma, requiring the reader to slowly piece together their relationship from the brisk first-person narration of Inspector Theodore Borlu as he investigates Mahali's murder. These questions that he has lead to the brilliant thing about this novel, how Mievel skirts the edges of the sci-fi genre, possibly making you unsure whether you're reading sci-fi at all, given that, that it has won or been nominated for several awards for science fiction fantasy genre fiction, including Hugo Award the BSFA Award, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and the Nebula Award. It seems fair to shelf it in that genre, but by by the end of his investigation, it isn't clear whether anything supernatural has gone on at all. That's, I mean, that's just wrong, right? (laughs) It is supernatural. (laughs) Like, it's, as far as I know, in our current world, we don't have parallel existing realities. I I know there's theories about it, right? But like, no one has a functional living space where they can shift between two realities, do they? (laughs) Um, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. The, the, also just breach itself, the, the movements. So the way that uh, Borlu described it, it seemed almost like, Supernatural, the way that they move, mm-hmm. but also the weaponry was advanced. He he described the silencer as yeah. almost um, like fleshy. In yeah, didn't some one ways. of them have like a goop on it or something? He's like, "There's yeah. a goop on this gun." <laughs> goop yeah, gun. that's the that was the silencer oh, okay. that he had never seen before. Yeah, yeah, so it was like he said that it it was some kind of organic material as yeah. a silencer. But like, so that's I mean, there's some supernatural the, stuff. The there. thing is that. Even if Breach, as it is revealed, is just super cops, they don't have any supernatural abilities. They literally just have like extensive wiretaps and video cameras and contacts. Like, yep, they're, they're nothing special there. You're right. There's also hints left, but like the baseline premise of the book is f- sci-fi or fantasy. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> it, the, it has to be because this is like a totally. Th- there's no place on Earth where two cities live on top of each other in parallel reality. Like <laughs> I just didn't. Yeah. I, I like everything else about that paragraph too. I think it summarizes his approach well. But like to get to the end of the book and be like, was this even sci-fi? Um, seems a little extreme <laughs> to me. I did not agree with that conclusion. Like I, I also I, agree. the funny thing is, I I agree with. Me Maybe what she was getting at, which is like, I think this is a great detective book and just a good sci-fi one. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. the sci-fi stuff pops. Um, 
in the end maybe but anyway yeah it was um, purposefully muted I yeah think. yeah for sure um next quote the separation between the cities simply comes down to social contracts it's not just keeping us apart or it's not just us keeping us apart it's everyone every minute she re- reads that quote i read so if breach can be explained through pr- purely natural means not even stretching the boundaries of science although perhaps stretching the boundaries of psychology and orsini is confirmed as a myth where does that leave the story in terms of genre again this question is absurd they they can't it's what do you mean natural means (laughs) nothing about our current understanding of nature says that two parallel realities can exist and we can prove it it's just theoretical in our world so Mm -hmm. like it is a sci-fi of course the characters in a sci-fi book think it's natural because they're in the book (laughs) it's like i don't get the premise here or get the line of thinking yeah are are they are they so the way that i read the book the way that i understood the cities is that they are physically next to each other they are which is why it's called gross topically Mm -hmm. um but and then within each other as well where like certain buildings that's critical because as he shoots the guy the assassin he says that he's about to go to a part of the city that is not overlapping right again no places on earth exist in that way like right. a, the boundary idea, right. of course, mm-hmm. is so literal. Obviously, we have like real historical yeah. examples of places that are cut up, divided up. Jerusalem and West Berlin come to mind, or Berlin, right. like obvious ones. But so it's like we, I get that boundaries exist, of course, but right. not in yeah. ways where you can, your brain can all of a sudden perceive a different building and then switch positions without moving your body. Like this is a, right. <laughs> the whole premise is sci-fi. You just can't, and like you know, to call it natural or to think that it's a psychology thing, it is to the characters in side of the fictional world but this is a right. fiction it's still a sci-fi premise or again whether you want to call it sci-fi surreal you know fantasy whatever that stuff matters to me less but like right, I, I think right. i don't know it's a sign of i guess how well the book was written or how subtle that this author is kind of taking up this argument but i just don't i still just don't get the line of reasoning yeah yeah um, i agree it just seems like it is yeah and again if you want to call it like subtle or talk about how that balances against other elements of the fiction or something i get that but the whole thing being like what, what is this even really it's like no we we know this is fantastical it's the right the, it's pre- meant to be yeah, yeah. <laughs> the premise is non-real there's no place you this our world is not this way so anyway um final quote then the, uh, but this near realism is perhaps what gives the city and the city an honored place in the sci-fi genre maybe avoids all the typical avoids all the typical tropes interstellar travel aliens hovercrafts ai genetic engineering but he still uses natural means to produce a highly fanciful world which is exactly what sci-fi is meant to do take plausible concepts to the extreme and explore the implications of the result so a a nice summary here at the end Um, I still don't get the natural part because there's nothing natural about parallel realities that's not a thing we know about but like I do think that the rest is is well said here where it's like he did really chase this borders idea and like what do cultural borders even mean what's the implications of them do they matter and he really did chase it down in an interesting yeah. way. Yeah, I agree. And and I like the term near realism that I mm-hmm. think that fits really well. That's a that's a great term. Yeah. Yeah, so that quote I yeah, and I agree with a couple of the other quotes in that review too, but I just because um one of the kind of foundations of her review was this sort of like isn't it just kind of real though? And I I just couldn't fully switch my brain <laughs> to agree with that. It was like, I don't know. Like I don't get I don't get what you're going for. But any uh, any thoughts on that review? Or, I don't know, any thoughts on those quotes? Um, no, I mean, 
Yeah, the term natural is is an interesting term to use considering we don't have... I, I guess she just means it's not a, an extreme stretch of the imagination like going to a different universe and right. blah, 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 blah. But it natural is not the correct term there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, and yeah, I don't know. Maybe I had misread. I, I didn't do like a deep reread of that review, but those quotes were enough for me to be like, yeah, I don't, I'm not, <laughs> not in, in this point of view with you, but I, yeah. Anyway, trying to understand it. Um, okay. Well, let's end with our hall of fame. We always do our book club part twos. Our conclusions are always inducting something into the hall of fame, something memorable that we'll take away from the book and can praise and admire about it. I'll start cause mine's going to be itself a little contradiction. Nice little, um, oxymoron paradox here. I'm going to induct breach, even though I've criticized kind of its execution <laughs> in the final act, but like, uh-huh. I think his approach to something fantastical <laughs> is the perfect pace. Like it's confusing for a while, then ex- then introduced pretty clearly, but then it's explored and there's some additional complication. And then there's a light twist at the end, but maybe it's not the twist you would have wanted or an extreme twist. Like, I just think it does something really smart that any sci-fi, fantastical, surrealist, but whatever, again, the, the label. But like all books should take this approach, which is you take one key idea you know premise whatever and you just like manipulate it around what our world is like it's like you make our world bend to this one conception because if breach didn't exist uh, and these obviously that not existing i mean these two cities don't exist in their parallel worlds but like everything else is so readable you know in terms of reality so again that's i just think his paced approach to what he wanted to explore in the fantastical sense was really really good like really excellent so that's what i'm inducting yeah that's a great one uh his it could have just been detective fiction and and it would have been fine but the concept of breach in the the city within the city like that's yeah it it definitely elevated the book for me for sure um i would induct the showing of the psychological aspect of borders the idea of Mm -hmm. like seeing versus unseeing and just how arbitrary everything is um, so I, I thought of it as like kind of a nice commentary on like current world politics and stuff like that um, without being in your face about it. It's just like a nice thing to kind of mirror something that uh, to an extreme, of course, um, what's right. going on in our old world with our own world. And so um, and the psychology behind it, of course, to the extreme. So I, I just thought that that was handled very well. Yeah. Yeah. And the. The unseeing, unsensing, all that stuff. Once you grasp it, if you even can perfectly grasp it, <laughs> but one, <laughs> once you grapple with at least or grasp a couple of the key premises, then it does, yeah, I think work excellently. Allows for some good character exploration too, at least with Borloo. Um, any final thoughts on the book then? It's a good one. No. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, a very, a very strong, solid read. Recommendable to anyone who likes that fantastical sci-fi type writing yeah so let's let's end with those positive thoughts a couple notes as we exit the podcast we are again the lightly literary podcast and we thank you for listening all the way through we always appreciate that leave a review on the podcast platform you're on of your choice if it allows such a thing we always appreciate that though it helps get the word out and i think the algorithms 
that's that's all that helps. <laughs> you got to rate, <laughs> review, recommend, whatever. Anyway, um, we have Instagram and Facebook accounts at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. So check us out there if you want to see what we're reading, keep up with our schedule, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we have other books coming up, uh, which Amanda will tell you about briefly. Yeah, next up we've got Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. And finally, we have Pandora's Jar by Natalie Haynes. Yeah, we're in our novel sprint phase. So this novel, another novel, another novel, then some nonfiction. The usual cadence of our pod. <laughs> fiction <laughs> yeah. heavy, but fiction heavy, but not fiction exclusive. That's the philosophy here. Excellent. Okay. Well, again, listeners, we thank you as always for sticking with us all the way. We appreciate it. Hopefully you enjoyed the discussion. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. 